This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. It looked like a war zone. There were gold casings of bullets scattered around our feet. And Ruth was explaining to us how the bullets got there. Ruth and her husband Stephen are pastors in the western highlands of Papua New Guinea. And they started an orphanage where they have 60 children. The previous month, I was visiting my son Matt, who lives in Papua New Guinea and works as a doctor at Kujip Nazarene Hospital. And this orphanage is right down the road from the hospital. So we were visiting Ruth. She was explaining what happened in the most recent election. Every five years, there's an election in Papua New Guinea. And it always, always, always is preceded by and followed by violence. In this particular district, in this small village, the incumbent lost the local election. So he and his thugs were really angry. So they started showing up at various houses in this village and shooting around and burning houses to the ground. The Economist magazine called the most recent elections in Papua New Guinea the worst elections in that country ever. Ruth was a victim of this. She was showing us, we were standing in the orphanage on the dirt ground and we were looking out over this field, this huge field about the size of three football fields, which was just flat ground. And she said, there used to be 20 houses there, grass houses with tin roofs. These men came and they burned them all to the ground. They're all gone. There's like no evidence of the houses left. And then they came and they came to the orphanage and they said, now we're gonna burn your houses down. And Ruth and Stephen said, no, you are not. You cannot burn these houses down. And they said, why not? And they said, because these are our children. These are the children of Papua New Guinea. These are your children. These are children from our country. You can't burn the house down. They didn't look quite convinced. So then they ramped it up a notch and they said, and besides, if you burn these houses down, you will meet God face to face and he will judge you. And you don't want to do that. And they didn't. So they left. And they never came back. I want us to see what God is telling us in this passage from Isaiah. I think what he's telling us is, I want to fill the world with people like Stephen and Ruth. That's just one village, one place, two Christian leaders, 60 children, one orphanage. But did you hear what God said? In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, I want, I want to invite you to turn there to this beautiful passage for World Mission Sunday on page 609, verse 6. The Lord says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I want my good news to go to the ends of the earth, not just one place, one nation, one people group. I want it to go to every people group, 
to all the nations of the earth. And so we might ask, how is that going to happen? Because there's so many places where it hasn't happened. Well, it's going to happen in part through you and through me and through churches like Church of the Resurrection and through churches all around the globe. So we, at some point in this sermon, some point today, I want you to ask, what is my small part in this? But the thing I really want us to capture first and foremost is I want us to capture the servant because there's this servant mentioned in Isaiah chapter 49. And I'm going to say that we are merely servants of this servant, practicing servanthood under the servant. So who is this servant that is mentioned throughout this passage? Well, spoiler alert, it's Jesus. You might be surprised to hear that, but it's not actually that obvious. So I want you to pretend like you don't know that yet, okay? And so the question we need to ask first is, who is this servant? What is this servant up to? And how can I live as a servant under this servant? That's the first question we need to ask. So what is this servant up to? I'm going to say three things. He's up to something really big. It's really bright, like light, like illuminating, like good light in the darkness. It's big, it's bright, and it's beautiful. And we get to join it. First of all, it's big. Um, look with me at verse 3. Because it says, it says here, it's like God is speaking. He says, you are my servant. Who is that? Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky. Because it's not actually Israel. He's not actually talking about Israel. But he's talking about somebody that's Israel-like, that's like Israel. So, for instance, for, to begin with, Israel did have a special mission to the nations. Ex, or Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 is one of the most important verses to understand the whole story of the Bible in which God picks one man, and he says, Abraham, and he says, I am going to bless you, and then through you, I'm going to pour out all my blessings to the whole world. As my friend Thomas, a Jewish believing follower of Jesus, likes to said, say, God only choose, chose me, the Jewish people, because he loved you, the Gentile people, so much. And he went through us like a funnel to get to the whole world. The Jewish people had that special mission. But in this passage, this is not just Israel. This is somebody that embodies the mission of Israel, but extends it in ways that Israel was never able to do. Look at how big the mission is. Look at verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands. This is the servant talking. And give attention, you peoples from afar. Now, no prophet of Israel ever said, listen to me, look at me, and not just Israel, but the whole world, look at me, pay attention to me, listen to my voice. No religious leader ever said that. Muhammad didn't say that. Buddha didn't say that. Like, just, it's all about me. Focus on me. Who is this person? He has a, this person has a worldwide, global ministry across geography, across cultures, it's not only big, but it's, it's focused, it's, it's passionate, it's intense, intensely focused. Look at verse 2. 
He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me. Takes two weapons of war, two instruments that are used to maim people and kill people and do damage to people. Uh, a sword, a sharp sword, and a polished arrow, with which you shoot like that. And he takes these weapons of war, and he transforms them into weapons of love, weapons of salvation, weapons to reach people. But it's this idea of intensity. We also see that this person is, is hidden. He, this won't be obvious. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. And in his quiver, he hid me. There's a hiddenness about this, this person. In other words, this person is not going to be a political leader like we might expect, in the way we might expect. It's not obvious, his agenda, his program. It's, it's, it's quieter, it's hidden, it's under the surface. It starts in a smaller place, and yet it has more power to transform than any political leader ever would. So who is this? Well, as followers of Jesus reading this backwards, we would say this is a prophecy pointing to the Messiah forwards. Somebody that embodies God's mission in Israel, but extends and completes that mission to bless all the nations. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and Israel might be gathered to him. So it's a mission to Israel, but beyond Israel. Look at verse 6. But he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's too small. That's too light. I want something bigger, God says, through this embodiment of his, of his mission. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. All the nations. And let me just say here, it's so big, it's so monumental, it's so huge that until you, well, let me put it this way, unless you get overwhelmed, you look at this and go, oh my gosh, this is so huge, this is overwhelming, how is this, this is impossible, this is so hard, this is so difficult, how could anybody possibly do this? How could we be involved in this? How could this possibly pull off? If, if you think that, you're on the right track. Because there is profound failure and discouragement in bringing this good news to the nations of the earth. Look at verse 4. But I said, this is the servant talking, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. If this is the servant I'm talking about this is Jesus this is Messiah he is also embodying the discouragement the slow the sense of slowness and failure and lack of success that people experience when they bring the gospel across cultures into really hard places let me just say I just been so convinced of this this week there is discouragement and, and maybe some of you are dis discouraged this morning by some things in your life. And, and I believe God is a God who comforts those who are discouraged. But I think there's a special, maybe not special is the right word, there's a, 
unique burden of discouragement for those who are frontline cross-cultural workers in places of violence, in places of terror, in places of spiritual darkness. There is a unique form of discouragement and burnout that they face. And why is that? Because they're on the front lines of some really, really wicked, awful stuff sometimes. Traumatic stuff, spiritually traumatic stuff. And sometimes the resources are not there. They're so, so they're facing hard things and they're also experiencing a lack of resources. So no, no wonder there's discouragement. And I just want to say, if there's any cross-culture workers that are going or that are listening to this, or God, Jesus, Messiah, gets that in a very special way. And he's telling us that in this passage. This is for you. He says, I, I know what that's like when you feel like you've labored in vain. And, and it's just hard. And you're discouraged. And you're burnt out. And yet, the end of verse 4 says... This servant says, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And yet I'm trusting in my Father in heaven, even though I'm not seeing the fruit, even though it's really hard, and even though I'm really discouraged, it's ultimately his mission, and he will see it. So it's big, and Jesus meant it. I want it to go to all the nations of the earth. It's also bright. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is all throughout Isaiah and, and, and the entire scripture. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and yet nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This idea of the Messiah and the people of God being lights in the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, you are the light of the world. So which one is it? Well, it's both. Philippians 2.13, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Light uncovers evil. It dispels darkness. It shines light on reality and truth. It shows people where to walk. But remember, we are merely servants of the servant. Serving him under him. Now, I mention this because there is a claim about the history of world missions in the church that it is inherently more about darkness than light. That it is inherently done more harm than good to cultures, to people. It's a very common claim so I was reading this book by uh, an anthropologist, a Swedish anthropologist, not a believer, named Don Kulik, called A Death in the Rainforest, in which he tracks the demise of languages in Papua New Guinea. The funny thing is, he relied on missionaries to get into these tribes and to uh, unlock their languages, but he touches lightly on that. But he says at the end of the book, sometimes I think, and this is a quote, sometimes I think the only practical knowledge Christianity has given villagers in Papua New Guinea is proficiency on how to beat their children. And that's how he concludes the book. I'll get back to Don. But the claim is that it's inherently imperialist and colonialist, and it's bad for cultures, and it's forced on people. 
And how do we address this? First, we say that sometimes has been true. There is some truth to that. It's not completely false. The problem stems, though, not from the message itself. This problem stems from Christians not acting like servants under the servant, not patterning their lives after the servant, Jesus. What was the shape of Jesus' life? It was a cruciform life. It was a cruciform shape. This servant, as we're going to see later in the book of Isaiah, it becomes very clear, this servant is a suffering servant. So we get to Isaiah chapter 53. This servant is hidden. This servant is despised. This servant will bear the sins of the world. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He will bear the sins of the world. So he's got this mission. He's got this intensity. He's like a polished arrow. He's strong. He's got this strength, this focus, and yet he is the suffering servant. Verse 7, we get a little hint of this. In the the middle of verse 7, it says, talks about this servant will be one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. He will be under the rulers, it will seem. Somebody, I read a commentary this week, it said, God, based on this Isaiah 49, God does not approach the arrogance and oppression of the world with greater arrogance and oppression, but with the humility and vulnerability of a servant. That's how the servants bring light when we shape ourselves on the pattern of Jesus. So I'll get back to Don Kulik. So I I quoted these words to a woman in Papua New Guinea, a church leader there named uh, Marilyn Watsik, this little five foot, five foot, four eleven Papua New Guinea woman who came to know Jesus in one of the first believers in her village. I read these words to her and she said, first thing she said was, has this man even been to our country? And I said, yeah, he says he's been five times. How long was he here? Well, I I think total, like two and a half years. And she just shakes her head and she goes, this man does not know our country at all. If this man knew our country, he would never say anything like that. And then she went on a rant, a tear. She said, that is just so blatantly false. That's not how we view it at all. I, when I was in Papua New Guinea, I preached at this little tiny bush church, and then afterwards, um, one of the young men pulled me aside, and he said, thank you for sending your son to us. And I thought, well, that's not how it works in America. He just decided to go, and, <laughs> you know, I just like, okay, bless it, you know, so... Um, but I didn't tell him that. He said, you know, in our country, every time a missionary leaves, it breaks our heart. It breaks our heart. Now, that's not true all the time in every country, in every situation. But there's way more light than darkness. And servants of the servant can repent and say, Lord, I want to be founded on your love again. So it's big, it's bright, and it's beautiful. 
Notice in verse 7, so there's this one that's despised. He's abhorred by the nation. He's the servants of rulers. And then notice this reversal. It just like comes out of nowhere. Kings shall see and arise. They'll see who he really is. And princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. They'll prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. They'll see who this servant is, and they will rise up, but only rise up so they can fall down and worship. And then verse 8 says that there's, there's, there's going to come a time of favor and there's going to come a day of salvation when God's Spirit will work in a mighty way and verses 8 through 13 are just so packed with vignette after vignette of Almighty God working through His servant and through His people to bring the salvation to the end of the earth. So verse 9 talks about people being released from bondage and darkness. Verse 10 talks about the end of hunger and thirst. But verse 12 talks about how it's going to be bigger than just the Jewish nation, how people are going to come from all directions. And then verse 13 says, talks about how it's, it's going to be not only all the nations, but it's going to be even bigger than that. Verse 13 says, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. It's going to be all of creation. Not just the nations, not just the peoples, but all of creation. And, and that day is coming. That day is in the future. But it's kind of like there's, there's this wall up, and we can't see it, and we can't get there. And, and it's kind of like God wants us to like poke holes in that wall so the glory of the future comes streaming into the present. And that's what pastors Ruth and Stephen have done. That's what they're doing. That's how they're living their lives. The kingdom of God is coming into their place now. We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, that's the wall. It's, it's, the future is coming through the wall. The light is streaming through. And that is beautiful. And God is saying, I want more of that. I want more of that now. And sometimes we get a taste of it. We get a glimpse of it. Let me just tell one more story. So Matt has a palliative care patient, and palliative care is when the, the patient is, there's nothing you can do for the patient, and they're going to die. So there's this little girl, um, eight years old, who has osteosarcoma, which is cancer of the bones, and she's dying, and there's nothing they can do, and there's no chemotherapy, and, and there's no radiation treatment there in the Western Highlands, and so she is going to die. And her, she lives with her granddad, her papa boo-boo is what it's called, her grandpa. Her grandpa is a man named Paraka. In 1973, the gospel came to his village in the southern highlands, and his parents became believers in Jesus. They shared the gospel with Paraka. Paraka became a believer in Jesus. He raised his son and daughter-in-law in the church and as believers, but both of them died really young, so he has adopted this little girl. Everywhere we went, there's this little girl holding her grandpa's hand everywhere, just everywhere. She can't see. The, the, the cancer has made her blind. And everywhere, she's holding her grandpa's hand. This is a picture of profound tenderness. So I asked um, a guy who's been in Papua New Guinea 20 years, Vern Ward, I said, in the Southern Highlands, a man like this, would he be that tender towards his sick granddaughter before the gospel came to his village. Because many of these cultures are based on, on warfare and based on uh, violence. 
And he said, you know, it's hard to say. Can't say for sure, because people do things that are strange. But he said, it's highly likely that when she got sick, the village or the elders would probably turn away from her because she's, the cancer has actually deformed her, and it's actually deformed her face, and, it's, and, it, it, and he said he probably wouldn't be there for her, highly likely. So I thought about that. In 1973, a missionary came to this village, shared the gospel. They shared it with their son. Their son shared it with his children. They shared it with this little girl. They're both believers. We sat on a dirt floor in their church, and a local pastor gave a sermon based on the resurrection of Jesus. It was six minutes long. It was one of the most beautiful sermons I've ever heard in my life, all about the hope of the resurrection in Jesus. And you know, I walked away, and it was sad. It was really sad. But it wasn't tragic. We have this thing in America called, called deaths of despair, that people that die or take their own life because they just despair of life. There was no despair on that dirt floor with this little girl and her grandpa and this large family around them as they heard the gospel preached and all nodded their heads believing this. There was actually hope in this place. There was actually, dare I say, joy in this place. And I asked my son, Matt, I said, was that real? I just like, I, I, was that all authentic? He said, absolutely, Dad. He said, sometimes when people come to know the Lord in this context, they lean so heavily on Jesus. It's so real. It's so alive. It's so authentic. It's real. Again, the kingdom of God coming in, and God says, I want that to happen everywhere. I want that to happen through you. Now, you might look at this in the task, and you might just get easily overwhelmed or apathetic or it's just too much or guilty or exhausted or burdened or burnt off or I'm not doing enough. But remember, we are all just servants of the servant, and we have our little part to play. So my exhortation today is, first and foremost, come to the servant. Come to the servant. That's what we do every Sunday around the table. Listen to him. As Dean Steve will say in a few minutes, lift up your hearts to him. Feed on him by, on, in your hearts by faith and thanksgiving. And then as Deacon Margie will say, go forth into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then ask, what is my small part to play as a servant of the servant? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast.
To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.